Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I'm your host, Dwayne Mancini. As always, if you need anything from the podcast or would like to suggest a future guest, please email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. This is another episode of MedTech Money powered by Project MedTech. This is a special series by Project MedTech where we have partnered with Mr. MedTech himself, Giovanni Loricella, in a series of podcast episodes focusing on money in the MedTech space. Giovanni's guest today is Tom Shehab from Arboretum Ventures. In this episode, Giovanni and Tom discuss finding and managing a Midwestern fund, the relationships they must build to be successful, why are they so focused in MedTech, raising money as a venture capital fund, and more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Tom Shehab. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. Talking about the future and what comes next with Project MedTech. Tom, thank you very much for joining us here. This is MedTech Money, the podcast series, powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. And I appreciate you taking the time to share not only about yourself, but also Arboretum Ventures, of which we'll get into. But the reason why we're here today is because I've talked to thousands of MedTech entrepreneurs and investors around the world. And what I've discovered is that there's no real silver bullet or specific formula on how to raise or invest capital in MedTech. So my goal here is I wanted to extract insights and anecdotal stories from entrepreneurs, bankers, investors like yourself, so that we can help those who can benefit from the information, generations of entrepreneurs and investors to come. So what I imagine this audience being who's listening in right now is a mixture of experts and novices within either raising capital or investing capital. And I wanted to extract your specific stories, insights and advice to share with what I imagine the first time founder or CEO of a med tech startup that has no clue on what lies ahead on their journey of raising capital. And so I thought the best place to start is from learning experience from learning from experienced professionals like yourself. And specifically you and I, Tom, we're here today is I want to give insights to the mechanics of venture capital, how it exists, what LPs do on the other side of venture capitalists, um, firms that necessarily entrepreneurs aren't aware of, and specifically, what does it mean to be a med tech venture capital firm today and that focus that you guys have within this industry? So before we get into your background and a little bit more about Arboretum, I have three actually open-ended questions that I wanted to engage the audience listening in to get your perspective. And we'll start with the first one. Do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup why or why not? And am I missing anything else important? Yeah. So Giovanni, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I think this is a great podcast and hopefully it's helpful to folks. And, you know, I love to share the wisdom that we have and have developed over the years because rising water raises all boats within the whole med tech community. So really excited to be here. I think to your point, are people and money the, the heart of the med tech community? I think the answer is at first blush, yes. And I would say I would prioritize that. It's people first, right? It's a people-driven business from the uh, 
ideators to the executors to the folks who funded i think that it's it's really around the people and i think what lets great teams win is you've got to have great technology but you've got to have great people and there's a certain mindset as you know in the entrepreneurial ecosystem of startups and so i would say that i think uh money is important it's the fuel but really the thoroughbred are the people that you put in i would also add though i think that you know, technology and intellectual property are also really important. So if I were to prioritize, I'd add a third one, which is that, of course, there are many other things, but I, I believe that to your point, it's all about the people. We'd rather bet on the jockey, right? Then we, the horse is important and the race is important, but the people who do this are, are really the, the lifeblood of what, of what we do. And I love the fact that you brought up IP as being the third item to prioritize. There's actually a book, maybe you've read it, The Secrets of Sand Hill Road, yes. Venture Capital and How to Get It by Scott Cooper, one of my favorites. Um, and actually that word that I use when I ask the question, are people and money the lifeblood of a medtech startup? Literally in his line in one of his books, he says, IP is the lifeblood of startups. So to your point, having that third component is very important. Um, my second question for you is, you've built a phenomenal career. We're going to learn about that very shortly. However, if you knew what you know now about being a med tech venture capitalist, would you do it all over again? Why or why not? Or what would you do differently? Yeah, great question. So you'll hear my, my pathway is a little circuitous. I didn't wake up and, and say I'm going to be a VC. So I don't think I would do it over again any differently. I think that we're uh, uh, each person is representative of all the different paths that they've taken. And mine was, a, uh, I think, very valuable path for me to be an effective VC, um, but it comes with a lot of background. And so I would absolutely not do it differently. I think that I would have probably 15 years ago had VC on my radar screen earlier. It wasn't something that I had thought of, I've kind of uh, worked my way into this uh, uh, in a, I'll give the, some background on it. But I think the key things that I would have uh, appreciated earlier is something that didn't happen in my previous careers. One of the things that's great around the med tech and the entrepreneurial ecosystem is it's incredibly collaborative. While there's competition, it's collaborative. For me to see the kind of relationships that we can build with strategics and with bankers where people are mutually helpful to one another, it's something that I hadn't seen that when I came out of the classic large health systems world, it was a little bit more of individual fiefdom. So I think the I would have probably made the move even earlier if I could have, if I'd realized what a collaborative ecosystem it is, because I think that's one of the real things we have going for us. And what I've learned is anyone who's passionate or obsessed or loves their career of what they've built, that is the answer that I hear is, I wish I only would have done it earlier. So clearly you're passionate about what you do, which is great. Um, my, my final question, and this is more of my personal um little hobby. I love names. What, what, what's behind a name? What does a name mean? There's usually a story. Oftentimes it's not so dull. It's actually a pretty cool story, at least well thought through. Um, what does Arboretum Ventures mean? What is Arboretum? Yeah. So, you know, we're based, and I'll tell you the story of Arboretum, but we're based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And one of the wonderful gems we have in Ann Arbor, Michigan is a beautiful Arboretum. And the Arboretum was not far from our founder, Jan Garfinkel's house. And it was somewhere she walked and did a lot of thinking. It's a place that we all run uh, if we are runners in the afternoon, just because it's not too far from the office. And I think what it's morphed into, though, is a little bit of a metaphor for us. Everything is kind of themed around growing of 
seedlings into trees into hopefully our company's growing into mighty oaks, right? Or, or mighty maples, whatever they might be. And so we've really adopted the kind of Arboretum is a place where you take a seed and you grow it into something great and it becomes something hopefully beautiful, productive, and effective moving forward. Um, and so that's where Arboretum comes from. It also plays off the Ann Arbor name. And so it, it's got multiple layers of meanings, as you might expect. That's why I asked this question. I always love the, the story behind a name. So without further ado, Tom, thanks for giving us your background thus far. But who are you? Where did you come from? And how did you become managing partner? of Arboretum Ventures and everything in between. Yeah, I think for uh, most of the people listening, the key thing is, is a lot of this isn't planned. It just kind of, you work hard and hopefully things, you know, break in your direction. So I'm a uh, Michigan guy, right? I grew up in, in Detroit and then in the suburbs of Detroit, uh, went off to college and played college football, but the intent was always to be a doc, right? I always thought I'd be a physician. That was kind of the uh, multi-generational dream. And uh, so I actually came back to my home city, went to uh, medical school in Detroit, and then post that, um, did all my training at the University of Michigan. I spent another eight plus years in, in post-medical school training. My plan was to be an academic gastroenterologist. So I'm a GI doc by background and training and did research in the early part of my career. So even then, even in undergrad, I was always looking at kind of innovation and thinking about it, maybe not from the entrepreneurial side, but the development discovery side and how do you really make healthcare better, right? That was a theme that even in college, I was thinking about when we had lots of injuries in teammates and otherwise. So it became a bit of a theme. So my academic work was around new technology dissemination. And I realized that um, around the time that I was going out for kind of my first job, that I had, I developed some real leadership skills. So I, I moved out into a, a organization called Trinity Health. So in one of the regional areas of Trinity Health, and I took on a number of physician leadership roles while being a practicing doc and basically spent about 12 years kind of rising up uh, all on the provider side, but looking at trying to innovate within bricks and mortar healthcare and trying to do novel things and really kept feeling like, and I, my, my comment was to no offense of the structure that they built, but I felt like I was sanding a boulder with fine grain sandpaper. You're trying to innovate, but you weren't really making change because it's a very historically, uh, you know, conservative culture, I think, in terms of evolution. So mid-career, while I was still working and doing progressive leadership uh, work, I went back to Carnegie Mellon. I did a master's in medical management, which is kind of a physicians from around the world focused program in healthcare policy, innovation, healthcare IT. And it was right around the time they were writing the Affordable Care Act. And we knew that there was going to be tremendous change in healthcare. And at that point, just through some social networks, it gets to how I got here. I um, got connected with my two founding partners, Jan Garfinkel and Tim Peterson, who had an advisory board at Arboretum. And it had been around since the beginning of the fund. And they asked me to join the advisory board. And, and uh, you know, the joke that I'll say is my kids would tell you it was seven famous people and me. So, you know, it was, it was CEOs of large corporate uh, entities. It was, you know, founders of large organizations, but I was kind of the guy trying to, to change healthcare from the inside. And so I spent roughly four years on the advisory board while I had continued my normal work and joined a couple of our boards and, and got the bug of saying, you know, maybe I can make a bigger impact on how we deliver care to patients across the world, but particularly in the U.S., by disrupting from the outside of traditional healthcare rather than the inside. And then one uh, you know, 
important day. Jan called and the team was going out to raise uh, the fourth fund. They needed another, um, you know, person to join the team on the investment team. And so I, I came here, uh, made the move. This is just over eight years ago, made the move from kind of bricks and mortar healthcare with a little bit of consulting in the ecosystem to a full-time move and came in as a principal. Uh, and now I'm one of the, the managing partners. So the key thing I think for folks, I meet a lot of young people who evidently think differently than I didn't say, I want, I'm coming out of college. What's my path to become a VC? I would also say when you talk to VCs in healthcare, particularly more than half have kind of had a non-intentional route here, right? They were founders, they were entrepreneurs, they worked at med device companies. They had some experience that got them into the system and they became VCs. And so I think it's important that there's no one path to get here. And that's why I wanted to just share kind of the way that I worked my way to here. So that's your background. And, and I have some questions that I developed from that sharing, so thank you. But before we dive into that, I wanted to get some more foundation on, tell us about Arboretum. What's your focus? What style of companies do you invest in? Geography, check size, just give us that foundation. Absolutely, Giovanni, I'm happy to do it. Very proud of it because it's, it's more about Arboretum than it is a story about me or, or any of the people. But I think it's really, the key thing about Ar Arboretum, it's a great startup story, right? So the key message, if anybody takes away from this podcast, one of them is there's VCs that do really well outside the coasts, right? We think very much about West Coast and East Coast, but here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, we've got a fund that's now in our fifth fund. We've got $700 million of assets under management. We have stuck to our knitting as our term in that we started as med tech investors and remain continuing that. In other words, we tried not to chase shiny objects. We stick to what we do. And I'll talk a little bit about what we do. But I think it's also a story that will resonate to entrepreneurs in that um, my partner, who I mentioned earlier, Jan, was here in Ann Arbor, wanted to be a VC and there weren't jobs. And so she went out and started a fund. And so in 2002, to start a fund in Michigan and have it grow in that story, you know, our funds have progressively gotten bigger, 25 million, then 75 million, then 140 million, then 220, and then 250. So we grew just like we want our companies to grow. So I think one of the key things of Arboretum is we've all had experience in the ecosystem in different ways as operators, which is, is beneficial. So our focus is to invest in early stage companies. For us, that's roughly... 65 to 70% of those companies are series A or B. We'll do later. We'll also do earlier in, in certain situations. We invest across healthcare with the, with the exception that we don't typically do pharma where there's a binary risk, right? So we're not pharma investors. We haven't morphed into pharma investors. If you look at our portfolio of roughly 65 companies over the years, um, 60 plus percent of them are kind of classic FDA pathways. So devices, diagnostics, um, now things also like prescription digital therapeutics fall in the FDA pathway. Um, on the other side of that, the rest of the investments are healthcare services, usually tech-enabled services. In addition, we invest in healthcare IT. So when we do invest in healthcare IT, it tends to be more enterprise level rather than um, you know more simple direct-to-consumer type of, of uh, healthcare IT. In our, uh, to your question about check size, we... Uh, with our fund size, we tend to try to get somewhere between 12 and $18 million to work across uh, an investment. And we'll write our first check somewhere between five and 10. I think for the entrepreneurs, one of the key messages, if you look back across most of our investments, um, a good percentage, roughly two thirds, we didn't invest the first time we saw the company. 
We're all about building relationships. We're not afraid to talk to folks who are way too early for us because we know down the road as they develop, they may be the right timing. And so I think the key thing is people, I believe, think of our industry as a transactional industry. This is a professional services industry, right? It's, it's relationships that get built over time, and it is something that we really try to cultivate. So I'll stop there. Maybe that kind of hopefully provides a high-level view of, of uh, the firm and where our focuses lie. Oh, I guess one other important thing, forgive me, I've done this a couple of times, but we're really proud of the fact that we think it's a competitive advantage for us to be in the Midwest. We've been able to capitalize in the off-coast parts of the country. So our investments, roughly 70% of them have been outside of New York, Boston, and San Francisco. Let me clarify, wonderful companies in those locales. 30% of our investments are there, but we've been able to mine some of the universities and tech transfers throughout the rest of the country and have had some fantastic outcomes, not only here in Michigan, but throughout what would be considered in the past underventured parts of the country. So just want to put a shout out for that part as well. Let me pull on that string then. I had another question, but I want to stay there. So you mentioned reaching out to universities, et cetera. How do you get your deal flow? Yeah, you know, and that has transitioned over the years, right? As an early firm, it requires lots of um, mining tech transfers and, and uh, you know, going to early conferences and meeting people. I would say now that we're at the point of our fifth fund, we still work very hard at deal flow, but our deal flow comes from many more sources. I would say uh, perhaps prioritizing it, uh, other VCs. CEOs and management teams we've backed in the past who are now part of a new company after a successful exit. Uh, VC or entrepreneurs with whom we've met in the past who have a friend that, you know, they give us a warm handoff of somebody they know as a company in which we've been interested. In addition to, as I mentioned, you know, we spend lots of time at the incubators and accelerators. We remain very active in not only the Midwestern ecosystem, but more broadly, all of which drives our, um, our, uh, deal flow. And I think the last thing is, as a lot of folks, being present, right? We make sure that we're at the conferences and we're meeting folks as time goes on. But really one of the, the blessings we've had is to build great relationships with uh, VCs and, and folks in the industry who send a lot of things our way. Going back to the point you made earlier, VCs are like startups themselves. If we go with that notion, you mentioned that you had to start or started a fund with one person years ago because there was no other positions or jobs there to do so. And then now you're on your fifth fund. There's this concept of VCs have to prove themselves out in order to then go raise the next fund because you have investors, just like startups have investors, you have investors. And you have to prove your value, your worth, your success in order to then raise another fund. So as the funds get bigger in each consecutive fund, if, if they so choose to, um, is that why successful funds specific to medtech, as they get down the range, we start hearing these legacy style of medtech VCs or classical earlier stage VCs who have then grown themselves as startups, moving down the pike to getting more towards growth capital or having mandates of regulatory clearance or approval. And now they're looking towards commercial because they have these large funds that they have to deploy larger check sizes. Because if you go out and start a fund and you're focused on maybe a micro VC doing some seed or focusing on series A, for example, if you're successful 15, 20 years down the road, 
typically you're now a growth capital company who has a $500 million um, fund and you can only deploy 10 to 15, $20 million checks up front. Is that, what's your thoughts on that? Giovanni, it's a great question. And I think there's a lot here that we could debate for three hours about what is chicken and what is egg in terms of that evolution that happens, right? I'll, I'll speak to us first, and then I'll give you, I'll opine a little bit more generally. I think that we have found and feel like there's a sweet spot for MedTech VC for us, which is a fund of a certain size, but not going bigger, right? We've we've had very conscious efforts to say, we're going to be a roughly 200, you know, 50 to $300 million fund, because there are some pretty good data suggesting, particularly on the med tech side, that returns can be optimized if you don't get too big. Now, that said, there are some folks who are very effective with very, very large funds. And so, but I would say at Arboretum, our choice is to kind of live in that space. And I think it resonates very much. You mentioned our investors, our LPs, our limited partners, the folks who invest in us. Um, they have portfolios in their mind where they invest in super large funds, they less invest in micro VCs, and then they they like a certain group of folks who have a uh, mid-size range, which I say where we would fit. And then secondly, I think for us, it's been beneficial that over the years, we haven't morphed, right? We have evolved, we've incrementally changed, but we've not changed our fundamental mission. And I think that was one of the things, you know, the the tagline or, or, or vision of Arboretum from day one has persisted, which is we're going to invest in capital efficient companies that drive the costs out of healthcare while improving healthcare quality. And I think it's important because a lot of folks have caught on driving healthcare costs out. But in 2002, that was exceedingly novel. And I think what our LPs have appreciated is we have kind of stuck to that knitting and it's worked for us both in terms, I would say, our geographic focus our uh, capital efficiency focus and, and some of the other things that I would say are, and our, our, uh, our uh, staying in the verticals in which we are. Now to your question about growing funds, and uh, as I see it from the outside looking in and from a number of the positions I've been in, I think your point is well made. First of all, 20 years ago, we had a lot more med tech focused VC funds, right? There's, there was a tremendous decrease in number of folks who would do uh, med device and diagnostics, FDA pathway. And, you know, there was a component of time or a period of time where the challenge were the two R's, right? They've been regulatory and reimbursement. And it used to be that the regulatory was the big R, right? That was the hurdle you had to get over. And I would say over the last several years, that's gotten better, right? I think that regulatory has become a little bit more predictable. There's a little bit better sense. It's certainly not perfect, but I think the agency's done a nice job. I think now the big hurdle is, is reimbursement, right? How do you get paid for and how does that work? And so I believe that some of the market dynamics, some of the times the market, some of the decreasing number of strategics drove some folks out of, of med tech. I think we're really proud that we've stuck it out and, and feel like we've, you know, um, cross that chasm and, and are in the group of folks who are med tech investors. To your point about size, I think one is opportunity, right? Funds as they have success are able to get bigger um, and it, they are able to diversify their portfolio in terms of size, check size, and otherwise. I think that's part of what drives it. I think the other thing is it is hard to be able to span the spectrum from being an early stage investor through the life of that investment, unless you have a certain size fund. And so you have two ways to do it. You either get a very big fund where you can invest in an early stage company and really 
carry that company through, right? And MedTech, as you know, uh, takes a while to get to um, exit and, and people are holding back some of those timings of exits as we have consolidation of the strategics. And so you've got to have a big war chest to be able to do that, to be able to maintain your ownership and your influence in that company. So that I think is part of the phenomenon of, of getting bigger. I think the migration to later stage is the same phenomenon, which is it is, um, there was a period where I think everyone in our industry probably 12 years ago to seven or eight or six or seven years ago really thought about it's really hard to be an early stage med device investor. I think that's still a challenge, but I think there's been some success. There's been some companies that have been able to exit early um, prior to getting all the way to through the reimbursement. But I would say that I think the moving later stage and also moving the uh, uh, size of funds in order to cross that chasm is, is from the same effect, which is, can you get a company to the point of being, now you require almost certainly reimbursement in order for you to be acquired. I think that's been some of the driver. So being focused in med tech, you found that sweet spot that you've mentioned. I mean, you, you probably had opportunities to expand and go from 250 to 300 million to 500 million if you wanted to, but you found that niche that you expanded until you satiated that one particular point to stay in that series A, series B style. What is the med tech industry given back to you in terms of branding by staying true to an industry as opposed to diluting yourself out or even moving away from the industry. I mean, being so focused in med tech, which anyone who's listening to this, myself included, who I love med tech, I've dedicated my life to med tech, having a, having a firm not deviate, not swerve to the right or left of this industry and be focused in it. What has the industry given you back in terms of branding and understanding and network that's enabled you to stay put without reservation? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. I think back to your first question of the day about the people, right? It's about building networks and relationships, right? And I think being reliably there when people think about, uh, you know, there are folks who started their first company back when we were an early VC company that saw my partners and who now are on their fifth or sixth company are still calling on us because they know that we're still doing med tech. Now that said, we've got other areas of expertise within this. For instance, we're very strong in life science tools, right? We've done a number of companies there, but I think our key is that there's a little bit in my mind of a virtuous cycle, which is if you stay in an area of focus and you continue to be consistently there, you continue to be um, involved in the ecosystem from its earlier stage to its later stage, People, you know, feel like you're a reliable co-investment partner, you're a reliable VC to reach out for with a company. And I think for us, it's been important. One of my partners made a very good statement to me early on, and I mentioned it earlier, right? We are a professional services firm, right? We're here to serve our entrepreneurs with whom we engage and also our LPs, right? So we're kind of an intermediary at connecting all of those dots. And I think being a steady presence, um, but also I want to be, it's important. We've not been monolithic. So while we haven't really changed and woke up one day and said, we are classic biotech investors. And the answer to that is we also have stuck to what our experience set as a team has been and where our expertise lies. And, you know, Jan came up as a med device person, um, which I think was really important. Tim had experience in, in VC. Uh, Paul McCready is a uh, engineer 
recently, Nicole Walker joined us as a partner. Nicole is an engineer with med device experience. So I think part of it is also we built an affinity around med tech, as you've mentioned. And then we built our team around an affinity for med tech, along with life science tools and some of the other areas. So I think we've just, I'll go back to it. It sounds cliche, but we have stuck to our knitting. And I think we've benefited from that because when people hear Arboretum, I think they have an archetype in mind and we haven't really changed that significantly. And I think that's benefited us in a number of ways. 20 years ago, med tech may not have been the word used. It was classical medical devices and maybe yes. a bifurcation of medical devices and diagnostics. Um, now med tech is thrown around quite readily. And since COVID, it's people use the word health tech um, and it's now been blown up since COVID, right? And health tech can cover a lot of different things, including digital health. So when I think of med tech, I'd like to encompass everything together, med medical devices, diagnostics, SaaS platforms like going after med tech industry, um, AI, et cetera, all these new wearables, digital health. We talked about building a med tech firm like yours that was med medical device focused, med tech focused, and some of these other firms who have deviated with larger funds to go into biopharma just to deploy checks or other industries because they got driven out for whichever cycles. Do you find that med tech as a definition is expanding itself now that even forces a classical medical device or med tech firm like Arboretum to include that? So looking at those service platforms, as you mentioned, um, diagnostics, digital health, maybe. Are you going away from the classical 20 years ago catheters, implantable IPGs and cardiac rhythm pacemakers, et cetera, to more what's happening now and possibly looking at some of the buzzword technologies that are satiating that med tech definition? Yeah, it's a great question. I think one, we're, we're looking at everything. I think what I would say is what we're doing is we're seeing a confluence of what used to be discrete industries. So you had medical devices, you said, right? Catheters, pacemakers, you had health, you had IT or healthcare IT as a different area. You had data as a different area. Well, now you look at devices and virtually all devices are coming out as smart devices, right? By, by quote, smart, they have a data component. They also have a connectivity component one way or another, right? They either are connecting to the cloud, they're connecting to an external device where that data is collated. There's also a component of front ends, right? We're seeing more and more devices that might have an app that the patient's engaged in. So if you think about it, if you take the historical verticals that Arboretum has been in, right? We'll say med device on the FDA side, some healthcare IT um, uh, on the, all of the, which have had data, you're now seeing those things push together. An example, we're in a company, you mentioned um, digital medicine. We were early investors in when the series A of, of pair therapeutics. So prescription digital therapeutics, right? When we first saw that company and Corey McCann came to us and said, we're going to go to the FDA and we're going to get treated our software as a medical device, as a class two medical device. And then we're going to be able to go out and, and do this, you know, almost in a pharma-like way of developing multiple products within a portfolio. Um, there's a whole lot of intermixing of those various areas. And so that's why when I opened up and, and talked about it in terms of, we're across healthcare with the exception that we don't typically take on the binary risk of this molecule or that molecule. And it relates to exactly what you said. I think that when I think of med tech, it is quite broad now. Um, and then within each of those slices. So for instance, 
when you take the big label of healthcare IT, if you were to take the entire continuum of healthcare IT, we'll look at everything, but we probably spend our focus in around 15 or 20% of that. And that's 15 to 20% that is feels like it's somewhat med device-like, or it's an adjacency that is really complementary to areas we know, life science tools or med device or diagnostics, um, or clinical trials, right? What's really important? How do you augment clinical trials given all of our companies virtually have dependency on clinical trials? So to answer your question, I think in a little bit of a summary, I think the lines have blurred tremendously. I think that we though, even when we look at new areas, try to say, do we as a team and our advisory board and our network have the capabilities to have us be value added investors and smart investors in that space? Or is it too far from us? And if that's the case, then I think we'll come back to our area of not just comfort, but more important expertise. So we talked about industries. I want to go back to geography. You've capitalized on the Midwest or off the coast, as you mentioned, and finding some gems. Seed capital with angel groups, we've really demystified that in some of these podcasts about um, how money sticks close to home. And typically speaking, angel groups either live within their immediate area, drivable area, and sometimes maybe go nationwide, but typically they don't even look outside the United States. What's the difference with venture capital and the, the capability or possibility of looking outside the United States and having opportunities to invest in Europe, Israel, Australia. Does Arboretum do that? Yeah, it's a great question. So first of all, we have it within our mandate to be able to invest outside the US. We have a proportion of our funds that could be invested internationally. We do have history of doing so. Um, we have a company that's domiciled in Australia. We have a company that recent investment that is in Toronto, Canada. We also have a company that's uh, Brazilian based. So. I would say for Arboretum, to your point, I think we look at geography as, as opportunity. We are not out looking for OUS companies that are going to purely have an OUS presence. I think that because that's just not our expertise, right? We, we don't have great history or great experience in you know, uh, the dynamics of, of MedTech in Asia. Certainly some of our companies will sell there, but we're, we will look at companies and we've seen a number of companies, particularly over the last couple of years that are Israeli based, but they have a strong presence in the US, right? So they're, they're looking at selling the US market along with OUS as well. So for us, again, I think one of our key goals is to always be opportunistic. So we would not say no to a company purely based on its, its uh, where it's domiciled, where its focus is. But I think again, for us to be value-added investors, we spend most of our lives thinking about uh, the US FDA, right? We certainly think about other places. We think certainly around CE Mark. And so we're gonna look at companies and gravitate to them that we clearly can bring a lot to the table because I think, you know, it's not a myth. There's sometimes a perception of VCs bring money. I think we're very happy to bring capital to the table, but we wanna bring a lot more wraparound services, expertise, and support to our teams that is far outweighs uh, the capital. And so to your point of the earlier question, right, the people and the money, the capital is part of it, but we try to bring the Arboretum uh, organization and family to our companies as well to add value. Do you believe that the European medical device regulations that were finally implemented this past May, a couple months ago, has that diluted 
OUS or international deal flow for you and even giving you more power and amplitude to focus on FDA and US companies? It's a good question. I don't know that it's um, really changed deal flow for us or medical decision-making. I think there's been a trend over the last roughly decade, right? I remember there was a point early on where we saw many of our med device companies doing their first in human or their first trials OUS often in Europe, right? And that 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 has really changed. Right? I think we've we've back onshored many more of those uh, first in human and other situations because of some of the dynamics that's happened. I think secondly, there was a perception, at least right or wrong, that up until five or six years ago, it was easier to get CE mark and more efficient to get CE mark, and you could probably get it faster than you could get FDA approval in a lot of settings. I think that that is flipped a little bit. I think the requirements are probably equaled the playing field a little bit. Um, compared to the the last uh, previous decade before that. But I think to your point, I don't know that what's gone on has focused us back here more just because our focus has been so clearly here all along. So it was, uh, I don't know that it'll change much for us. This is a major point that I want to demystify for those listeners, especially the entrepreneurs. So, so CEOs have to raise capital for their startups and they look often to you to do so. What they don't realize is, or at least pay attention to thinking about it, is oftentimes VCs have to go out and raise their own funds. Tell us about the other side because you guys are startups. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a great question. I think people don't understand it very well. And, and uh, you know, I, I've learned it from the ground as, as has our team. You know, I, I think at the most basic level, and I, I don't want to get too basic because this audience is sophisticated, but what's, you know, the really key thing is, and, and sometimes uh, people don't realize this, as I mentioned, kind of we're an intermediary, right? We are honored to be able to be uh, the distributors of assets that belong to other people, right? For us, as we've become a, a well-established firm, we have classical um, institutional LPs right? Pension funds, endowments, uh, university endowments, you know, wonderful organizations that take some of their money and give it to us with the idea of us, of course, needing to deliver returns. I think that's an important thing. While, because we're in healthcare, improving healthcare quality and all of the good outcomes that come with that. But as you said, Giovanni, we, we have a fund-based structure. So we raise a defined fund that has X amount of dollars in it. And then we have a period of time in which we deploy that capital. Um, and then our expectation is we're going to return to our investors, certainly more than they invested. And hopefully at a, at a you know, it's an illiquid fund for them, right? They're giving investments. So they're, we go out every day to deliver really impressive returns, right? We should, for them, given that we're a diversified part of their asset class, return well more than the S&P 500, right? That, that's what the goals here are, is to return uh, that. Otherwise, they could say, listen, I'd keep it in a bond fund or I'd put it in the stocks. So we have a certain group of folks to answer to. So just like our entrepreneurs feel like they have to answer to their board, we answer to our investors. And the great thing is we've built wonderful relationships. They follow us closely. They're great fans of us and great supporters. But as you said, you know, just because we work hard and, and uh, tell a good story, we have to perform. And our performance is the success of our companies, ultimately for those companies exiting, which for us is 
you know, most often to a strategic, but also we've had a number of successes on the IPO market and um, some of the other means for, for companies to exit successfully. But so perhaps that sets the constant test. I'm happy to go into more detail if you have questions. Yeah, I think one of the areas that I want to dig a little bit deeper into, if possible, is um, this idea of a 10-year fund with traditional VCs. If this was a perfect world and you could change it knowing what you know, what are some of the downsides of having a 10-year fund that could put on some time constraints when investing in companies? Like it, sometimes if you have to return money and we get that, like what are some of the things that entrepreneurs should be aware of um, that could come from a 10-year fund? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and I don't know if the phenomenon so much is the 10-year uh, the timeframe as it is the uh, need, well, the importance of VC funds returning capital to their investors, right? So that's an important thing. And so when you, I guess in general, hopefully our invest, our entrepreneurs and the companies in which we invest really shouldn't be aware of nor worried about our fund cycle, right? That's something for us to manage internally. Um, now that said, there are times where we'll say to folks, right? We're early in our investment cycle or we're later in our investment cycle, or, you know, we're, this is an investment that, you know, we're going to close a new fund in three months. We'll probably invest out of the new fund. But I think that for, if I'm an entrepreneur, what do I really want to know? I think the fact is that this is a industry where there's supposed to be steady growth over a period of time, and it's not over a 30-year lifespan, right? That That's kind of the VC mantra. It's over a shorter period of time. And so we would expect in a reasonable pace that our companies continue to grow, continue to make valuation inflections. We see that in subsequent rounds and they're moving towards uh, you know, successful outcomes. Now, as you mentioned, right, traditionally people thought about VC funds as being 10 years. It's often that things need to go longer than that, right? Because you've got some companies that you know, you're holding on to longer than you did before because you get to a better, you know, a better opportunity for transaction. But I would say that the bottom line, I think, for entrepreneurs is to realize just as the entrepreneurs feel like they have metrics and milestones, VCs do as well. They're not exactly the same, but we need to be thoughtful about um, the way that we build portfolios. At Arboretum, we, as I mentioned, are very opportunistic. So we don't, we have been thoughtful and successful in sticking to our underlying goals for companies and then investing in the best companies we see. And it's worked out well for us in terms of not putting us in a real crunch on the, on the 10 year cycle type of issue. I want to combine two questions. In your words, what makes a good board of director for an entrepreneur or a startup? And what are the top three to five qualities that make a good VC that an entrepreneur should be thinking about when taking on good money? Yeah. So what makes for a good board? I think a, a good functioning startup company board is, um, I think, a group of people who are intrinsically supportive. Now, when I say supportive, I don't mean rah-rah, uh, but I mean they're with a shared mission to drive this company to success. 
I think, and this is something Arboretum's always stuck to, I think a board that is diverse. And when I mean diverse, I mean in the broadest ways, in terms of experience sets, uh, gender, uh, ethnicity, all of the things that add different perspectives. I think that's incredibly important on a board. And I think in that, in addition to the people, it's the skill sets of the people. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, you don't want a board that is, uh, you know, six out of seven, I'll, I'll do my own provider, who all are MDs, right? Meaning physicians. It, it doesn't bring that perspective. You want a little bit of a representative sample, the ecosystem, and you want some folks who are willing to, I would say, think outside the box and, and challenge. Um, I think you want a board that has some experience in being board members, right? There are some duties that are very important to board members as a board director who are also shareholders, where you have to be very thoughtful about what part of your life you're representing in that moment. And I think you need board members that have uh, experience in your field. Now, they may not have deep experience, but we've seen some really high um, profile companies that have not gone well. When you look at the board and you wonder how do those people ever end up on a med device or diagnostic board? And so I think relevance of experience in those folks um, I think is important. And maybe it's not that they're healthcare, but they understand growth, they understand development, they understand startups. So I think that's the hallmark of a good board. Um, and I think a board that's willing to give good constructive feedback to the management team and the CEO in a way that is uh, beneficial. Um, and I think that they, you know, I think the key work of a board is not done in the board meeting. It's the time between the board meeting. That's where really the work is done. And so I think a board, you know, it doesn't have to be kumbaya, but a board that works well together and can put its differences aside, I think are really important and uh, uh, breeds a lot of success or the opportunity for success. And that part two of that question is that, is that from an entrepreneur's perspective, what are the top three to five qualities that you think make a great VC? Yeah, so I, I will, uh, I think they're caught up, you know, we've talked about a little bit at this. When, when I think about uh, an Arboretum, when we talk to folks we made invest in, they ask, what, what's Arboretum wanna be as a, as a VC investor to me? And I think it captures your question, I'll go into more specifics, is I've told this to a lot of entrepreneurs, right? I envision our role and my role is, we want to be the VC who's standing behind the right or left shoulder of the CEO far enough away that it's their limelight. They're the ones in charge, but close enough that we can whisper in their ear or they can turn easily and get an answer for us. And who we are very committed to be the same when things are going well as when they're going poorly, right? It's very easy to have a happy board and happy investors when things go smoothly. But in our industry, they rarely go smoothly and there are times things go off the rails. And I think you really judge a VC and a team by um, how they handle when things are not going well. And in that, I think those VCs that are, are bring great value have a network that they share um, in terms of with the management team, whether that be their other portfolio companies or other folks in the ecosystem, and that they realize that none of these companies are the same. And it sounds funny to say that, but they're all kind of snowflakes. There are certain things that are the same in everyone, but these companies, you have to manage them like you would any uh, uh, organization where you're looking at the uniqueness of the company because of the market, who the team is. And then I would say the last thing is for both a board and VCs, you've got to be able to work with the team to help them to optimize their success, which can come in different ways, right? In terms of 
hiring or who you put on the board, or do you bring in an executive director? Do you bring in executive coaches, right? How do you help give them tools that ultimately, and I've always said this is leadership in my entire career, right? A leader's role, if you think of the people you serve as runners or thoroughbreds, whatever you want to do, my job is to do two things. It's to pave the road so it's easy to run and it's remove all the obstacles, shovel the snow and get the stuff off it so that folks can run. And so I think a board and a VC's job is to try to facilitate a path with the team and then in any way you can remove as many obstacles as possible. You mentioned network and syndication before. What's the power of, for example, it's hard enough for entrepreneurs to find the right VCs that give all those added values and benefits that you mentioned, right? Timing, are they industry focused, et cetera. Along with reaching out and connecting with the right VC, what power comes from a VC being able to syndicate and bring that deal to other trusted VCs so that who knows, maybe the stars align with the sun and the moon and an entrepreneur reaches out to you, Tom, at Arboretum, and you say, what a great deal. I know three other VC firms that realistically could possibly take the whole round and this person doesn't have to make any more calls. Opportunistically and perfectly thinking, right? But what's that power of syndicating with a good VC? Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. So we at Arboretum syndicate almost all of our deals and we syndicate them because there's value add to that, both for us and to your point of bringing diversity of opinion to the board. It's not just one set of opinions. Um, I think to your earlier question about um, us kind of sticking to our knitting over time, we work very hard at building relationships with other syndicate partners. So we want to have deep relationships that are trusted with a handful of VCs or a large number of VCs, ideally, that we know that we can do exactly that, right? Often a CEO has been fundraising for a long time before a term sheet comes in. If we can come to the table and say, listen, we won't exclude some of the people you were talking to, but we also can dial up our three or four folks who would fit in this space that we think write the right check size and put a syndicate together. That's incredibly valuable. And we've been able to do that on both sides, right? We've been brought into syndicates and we've led syndicates that come together. Um, and I think that, you know, there are few stories where a single VC can pull this off without a, a good syndicate. And I think the, the nice thing about repetitively syndicating with certain folks is, you know, their style, you know, what they bring, you get, you know, you, you've, you've worked together uh, more often, you understand what their ethos is and how they approach things. I think there's value add. On the other hand, it's also fantastic to build a syndicate with somebody you haven't invested with before, because that has a multiplying effect for the future. So we're open to both, but we think syndicating is one of the really important parts of our business to do successful. And it is helpful to our management teams, I think, uh, very, very much, as you said, to, to help them line up the stars to get this done. Because if I'm the CEO, I, he or she wants to put their head down and get back to work. They don't want to be on the road raising capital, right? They want to do what's the ability to grow the company. So if we can facilitate that more quickly for them, there's value there. This idea that money is so personal um, and this concept of trust going off of the whole syndication that you're syndicating that you just mentioned, um, we hear a lot of how valuable warm introductions are that will hope, hopefully open up the doors even quicker. Not to say that cold outreach doesn't do anything, it does, but warm introductions are 
are helpful. This game of money is very personal, right? It's money breaks up families sometimes. It's sometimes even more strong than love and <laughs> when it comes to actually how personal it can be. Um, so when you talk about syndicating with other VCs, this concept of trust, when you give your trust because you're giving your money into entrepreneurs, you're trusting other VCs to syndicate. I'm sure other VCs are syndicating with you, coming and bringing you deals. How important is this game of trust and money when it comes to venture capital? Yeah, I, I would say independent even of the money, although it's it's there. So I'm not disintermediating it. I think this is a very, very much trust-driven business, right? Like any professional services business, um, people are making very big bets. So as, as VCs, we're putting significant capital into a company. So as an aside, at Arboretum, when we vent or diligence teams, we certainly look at all of the metrics everybody looks at, but we spend a disproportionate amount of time around the people, right? The people we're backing, it's incredibly important to us, right? Integrity, style, right? We do lots of diligence. I will tell you our great companies we're looking at also diligence us, right? What's it like to have Arboretum as a board member? You know, how are they when things are going well and not going well? Um, I think that's an important thing because to your point, there are going to be very difficult moments in almost any company's lives where you have to have some very important conversations, just like a family or a Fortune 500 company will do. And I think, you know, it's okay to disagree. It's okay to argue. But when there's trust, you can do that in an effective, constructive way, as opposed to a destructive way. And I think that what money does is it amplifies the level of tension and anxiety, right? Particularly if uh, there's not a lot of trust. And so I think the nice thing about building relationships and trust is that if you believe it's there, it allows for constructive, progressive conversations, even when things are bad. And if they, you do have a very big disagreement, you bounce back much faster. So I think that's incredibly important for us. When we think about our companies, it's all built about investing in people we trust. And luckily we've been very successful. It's never perfect, but I think that it is, there's too much in a startup to worry about. that could go awry rather than worrying about, you know, is everybody in the boat together pulling in the same direction? That and trust is what helps to facilitate that. Last few questions before I let you go. I want to take a U-turn back to the focus of Arboretum into that series A, series B style of investing and that purposeful capping of the rounds, if you will, because you found your sweet spot niche. Um, as we've talked about funds and VCs who continuously grow, sometimes outgrow the industry or go far downstream where you're only with the ones that are commercializing. Um, beyond the fact that there's a niche that you found and, and the cap on some of the funds that you've done purposefully, is it because there's a passion project and a need that you're satiating of getting involved in earlier stage money that is really hard to find, typically speaking, because you guys are coming in right after that angel group round. You're, you're outgrown the angels, but necessarily you're not growth stage capital. And there's that huge gap that oftentimes we hear from our entrepreneurs. That's some of the hardest money to find, right? The earlier stage stuff is oftentimes the hardest stuff to find because you're, you're not investing like you are sometimes in capital or late stage capital growth, um, objective businesses, de, uh, traction businesses, businesses that have hit milestones. You're, you're taking risks on the earlier stuff. So 
you're satiating a need for the industry that's very well needed. Is it more of a passion project because of that? Or is it, does the numbers work and everything just comes together for you just to stay right there? Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great question. It's, it's not a passion project only in that, as we said, right, we have to, we have to have successful funds. And so it's, I think we're passionate about trying to meet that need, but not at the cost of, of impairing our ability to deliver outcomes. And I think one of the things, Giovanni, you know, I mentioned we do series A and B for roughly 60% of our investments. Other 40%, some of those are, are much later stage, right? So some of those are in a much more established company. We have a couple of companies where we invested not far before their IPOs, certainly not in a kind of crossover round, but prior to that. And so again, we, we have a lot of structure built in where we're trying to mitigate, which is what we do with our portfolio companies as well, risk as much as we can, right? Distribute our risk across a, a number of areas. But I think to your point, we have a lot of internal personal passion around that early stage company um, because we have a lot of experience that. We have certainly passion around our later stage companies. And ideally we take the early stage company and grow it into the later stage company and we can still stick around. But I think I don't want to make it sound at all like we've kind of figured out the perfect um, prescription. We figured out what works for Arboretum over the five funds in terms of size and distribution and the way that we do it. Um, And it's worked out for us. You know, if things change dramatically in the industry, might we have to move later? Um, you know, you never know, right? Time never changes, or never, you can never tell. But I think what we've tried to do is be able to be thoughtful enough when we go early that we can stay and add contribution across the life of that company. And when we go later, be able to add real value there as well. So I do think it's a combination of opportunity, uh, necessity, but also being thoughtful about the fact that ultimately, right, we're able to fund more companies by us being able to raise future funds and continue to perpetuate what we do. Because you're a traditional VC and not an angel group, so let's just stick in that very early stage, Series A for the first point. I'll make a, I'll paint a picture. Imagine a, a company has raised angel money, they have some traction, and the founder realizes that they're not the CEO who's going to take this moving forward. And they hire a CEO the first time hire of an external CEO, and that person's tasked with raising Series A. What would you advise those styles of entrepreneurs, those earlier stage med tech entrepreneurs who are looking at VC, having to raise that early stage capital, how would you advise them to best build their network within this med tech space? How do you, how do you build a network yeah. of investors? Yeah, it's a great question. I think you, it sounds like it's going to be very basic, right? First start is you start to reach out to people that you think might be helpful and you ask for help, right? In other words, you, you meet somebody. So at a meeting, you meet one of us and you have a conversation and, you know, it, it grows over time and you may get to the point where they can say, you know, can you point me in the direction? If, if we're too early for you, who else can we go to? So there's never a problem in asking someone if they, they can help. I think number two is, you know, and it's going to be different in the COVID, post-COVID world a little bit. You get out there and network, right? I think some of our greatest CEOs are great networkers. What I mean that is they get out there and they meet people at conferences and they introduce themselves. And, you know, they may open with, listen, I know my idea is a little too early for your company, but can we chat for 10 minutes, right? I'd love to get your opinion on that. I think there's some access that can be built in regional um things that support the ecosystem. In Michigan, we have the Michigan Venture Capital Association. There's a great way to do that. A number of states have those initiatives. And then I think, you know, the incubators and accelerators are another place where you can aggregate 
um, individuals. You know, we have a, a company uh, now that we're working with that's in Fogarty Innovation, right? I try when I go out to, to Northern California to touch base with as many companies that are in Fogarty as, as I can, even though they may not fit for us, but they're a uh, value add of meeting people. And I think, you know, it's two things. Number one, rising water raises all boats, as we said before. But number two is this may not be the right company, but this may be a CEO we back two years, five years, seven years down the road, right? We have a couple of CEOs we've backed multiple times. And we've even seen folks who were, you know, mid-career at a startup that five years later, the CEO. So we're building relationships to help them, but also it's beneficial to us. So I think for if I'm an entrepreneur, they're not bothering us, right? There's benefit for them to talk to us, it helps them, but also is beneficial to us as we get smarter, meet more people and build networks. So I think it's a combination of great CEOs build networks by hustle, by perseverance, and by willing to say, hey, can I ask you, you know, can you spend five minutes and I pick your brain a little bit about this? I think those are things that are important for networking. I'm gonna be cliche with this question and I'm certainly gonna date us in this time. VCs, and their thoughts on SPACs, specific to MedTech. We've seen a few of these MedTech companies go SPAC. Um, what are your thoughts on SPACs, good or bad for the industry? Are they stealing opportunities away from VCs? General thoughts. Yeah, it is. So first of all, I'm a humble country doctor. I'm not a finance guy. So I'll be the first one to, match, to say that. You know, I think SPACs have been a very interesting chapter in what's gone on over the last you know, I would say 16 to, to 24 months. I think the jury's still out. I think that my take, and I don't want to represent us completely, I think good SPACs, right, led by the right people with the right technology are a very interesting way to go to market. And I think we will see that to be very successful. The thing that's overwhelming right now are the number of SPACs. And, and the real question that I have, individual, is, you know, that's a lot of companies going public. Were they really ready to go public yet? And what happens if they can't raise capital in the public markets? And so do you have some folks who went out earlier than they would have at some point? And so I think it's too early to really tell where the SPAC, what I call SPAC mania is going. But I also don't want to be overly dismissive because I think that there are going to be a fair number of very successful SPACs that got a company public earlier than it would have. It was probably ready to go public, but they used a different means. Um, and I don't see it going away, right? The whole idea of a blank check, uh, you know, going public pathway that used to be uh, considered to be a suboptimal pathway. I think it's going to stick around. I think what we're going to see though, is a little bit of a pendulum swing back to some kind of normal rates of it. But I do think overall, uh, you know, I hate to do this. It's a little bit like splitting the difference. I think SPACs have been beneficial in some situations that have been quite beneficial. I think the jury's still out on the rest at this point. So it's too early to tell. But I would say, you know, we've had this trend of med tech companies staying private longer, but wanting to get out, but not having the right window. I think the SPAC is open window for some of those folks that otherwise wouldn't have it. And I wish them, you know, great success. We've had some, you know, uh, experience with the SPAC market, but I think overall, when you know, we're still waiting to see where things lie. But we're we're bullish on good SPACs doing well. Last question: You and I had talked about this yesterday, and we wanted to make sure that the audience heard this on your advice. This idea of MDs going through med school into business school or getting involved in the VC fund um, later on, 
sometimes are missing out. Sometimes it's not as valuable as they think it is in terms of the MD practice. If they're not going to go into practice. I want to make sure, cause that was an interesting point that you and I discussed. And I want to have the listeners hear that, that those thoughts of med school going into business and what does that do for you? And what are you missing out on if you don't do it properly? Yeah, no, it's a great question. First of all, this is one person's opinion. I think there's a couple of things. I think number one, a lot of things have changed in healthcare and there are lots of folks jumping out of healthcare who don't have a landing spot. And so it's, I think the first thing is if you are a, a doc who's always planned to be a doc, think twice before you leave. Sometimes I see folks give up tenure and they're leaving their roles and it's, it's not for the faint of heart. That said, I think there's two things when I think about the growing growth of MDM, MBAs or MD, MMMs, the thing that I did, which is um, one personal opinion. A person who does an MD, MBA and doesn't do any of their post-training, doesn't really take care of patients at all. I've had some feedback and folks who've come to me for mentoring that they feel commoditized. They feel as if they lose their MD credibility and become more of an MBA. And the question is, should I have done med school? Now, that said, we have some folks in our portfolio of MD, MBAs who didn't do a lot of clinical practice or, or patient care that have done extremely well. But I do think there's something as you sit on boards or you become a chief medical officer or you become a CEO of a company that if you're an MD and you have some of that experience of what was it like to deliver healthcare? What's the system like? What are it's, is it like dealing with payers? I think you're able to optimize your MD portion of your training, not just the scientific background. So I guess my thought for the folks who are listening are MD, MBAs. Think really hard before you walk away from your clinical time. And do you have enough experience in the MD world to add value to your portfolio companies as an MD or not? Because I think that's something I now have. I get called probably several times a month by folks who are thinking of making a change or want to know what my path was. And I would just say, really think hard before you make a move, um, because for everyone you see who does it really well, there are some folks who have, who have floundered because perhaps they didn't think more uh, than they should have about it. And I don't think it's ever bad for folks to have clinical training. It does change the way you interact with folks. And I guess my last comment is seeing 10 or 15,000 patients in my, I don't know, 15 years of, of practice helped me to understand people a lot better, which I hopefully makes me a better board member and better at diligence and better with interacting with people. So, you know, it's a, it's a personal thing. I don't think it's a critical point, but I do think folks should think about they're getting that dual degree, where they want to go with it and what the value of that is for them long-term. Tom Shahab, managing partner of Arboretum Ventures. Thank you so much for your time, all of your insights. This has been absolutely incredible and I hope our listeners enjoyed. I know I did. So thank you very much. This is MedTech Money, demystifying raising capital. Thanks, Giovanni. I've appreciated it. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.